Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. feel like there was a reckoning still that needs to happen for a lot of architecture firms that we yeah. can't just pretend that what happened over the past couple years didn't happen and, and revert back to what we were mm-hmm. then right it's different i think our employees want something different i think the public is asking for something different and i think that the answer is going to be different for all of us but certainly for us it's really honing in on what is the purpose for us being here, right? And how do we make sure that we are using really like our skills, our passions to make the world actually better. Welcome back to Context and Clarity, a place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that are joining us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. We're just two weeks into our fall season, and we're already exploring really important topics when we think about the future of the architecture profession. Our guest this week is Amanda Dunfield. Amanda is an architect and a change maker. She's the founder and director of design at Astra Studios, where she operates under the philosophy that good design can change lives. And she believes in challenging the status quo by making good design available to anyone. I love this conversation because we talk about how If architects truly want to affect change, 
It's necessary to imagine new business models for the practice of architecture. Listen in, hear what Amanda Dunfield, founder at Astor Studios, has to say. Then let us know what you think about new business models. All right, Entree Architect community, it's 2 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, which means it must be time for Context and Clarity Live. Uh, thanks for joining us today. This is, I keep saying this, it's not really the new time anymore, but it is our time uh, since our shift from uh, 4 p.m. on Thursdays. But we're back for the fall season of Context and Clarity Live. And this is a place where we talk about the things that are important to you, no matter what your context is, we know that uh, you're probably if you're joining us here, you're probably a small firm architect somewhere in the world. That narrows it down just a little bit, but um, we strive to have these conversations and uncover the things that matter most to architects just like you. So, thanks for joining us today. I am joined as usual by my co-host Katie Kangas. Welcome back, Katie. Glad that you're here today, all the way from Minnesota. We have. This, this is really exciting because we have a fully Midwestern day today. We do. It's going to be a very polite conversation. <laughs> this is true. This is absolutely <laughs> true. And you may get some Midwestern lingo, but this is going to be, we were talking about this before we went live. We need to have today's guest in my pro practice class because we touch on some of the things that I'm sure we will discuss today in this conversation. But our guest today is an architect. She's a change maker. She's a founder. She operates under the philosophy that good design can change lives and believes in challenging the status quo by making good design available to anyone. She's the founder and the director of design for Astra Studios. Amanda Dunfield, welcome to Context and Clarity Live all the way from Columbus, Ohio. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having Hello. me. Absolutely. Glad that you're here. We've got to do this shout out for all the Ohioans out there, you're in the heart of it all. That's right. <laughs> That's an Ohio thing, right? We talked before, and I mentioned just now that you need to speak to my pro practice classes because one of the things that comes up in a discussion, at least in my discussions, you know, my classes about architecture, pro practice is, you know, what's the real role in 2023? Here we are. I don't even know what the math is. I ran out of fingers. You know, the story of AIA and the 13 guys in February in New York in 1857, right? So if we take AIA, founding of AIA, 1857 to 2023, what is the real and appropriate role? And I know you think more broadly than just architecture, but if we think about it in terms of architecture, what is the real appropriate role for an architect in 2023? And I have a lot of students that are interested in social justice. They're interested in housing and security. You know, a lot of topics that when I was in school were never discussed or rarely. So I think that's one of the reasons that it's really interesting to have you here and really interesting to talk about that idea of making good design available to anyone. So how did this get started? How did this focus on making change, on change makers and making design accessible, if I could say it that way? Where did this all begin for you? Yeah, where did it begin? I think 
I mean, really, I think it's the reason why I became an architect to begin with, right? I think so many designers broadly, but certainly within the discipline of architecture, were called to find a way to make the world a better place, right? And I think we get it, it like exposure to that in school too, right? That we have agency there and we have a powerful tool in our hands. And then we get into practice. And I think a lot of us get disappointed because yes, the, the learning the craft, right? That needs to happen, right? And it almost doesn't matter what you're working on. You need to le- learn the tools and understand the process in order for, to get from idea all the way through construction on a project and what that takes. But eventually that's not like for me, that wasn't enough, right? We needed to find a way to be using those skills for a client that we didn't normally serve, right? They were the ones who I wanted to figure out how to help. And so after I got out of grad school, I took I took a break of four years in between undergrad and, and grad school. So I got out and worked and got experience. And after grad school, I took a the Public Interest Design Institute through Brian Bell. So they came to Cincinnati and hosted a two-day workshop. And sitting there, like being with other professionals who are really interested in public interest design and who were doing it, right? And they brought in speakers. It was very powerful to see like how other people were starting to address this, how to use design in a meaningful way in their communities, right? But what I learned is most of them were nonprofits and most of them were attached to a university. So I was like, okay, that's certainly a model, but like, how do we have a model that's different than that? How do we have a for-profit model that's doing good in the world? Like, how do we make this a sustainable business model that is, that could actually be the thing that we do all the time. Right. So I think it started off as the, reason why I got into design to begin with, but the crafting the how (laughs) has taken since like 2011. Yeah. I, I'm glad you said that. I like the way that you said that. And you, you mentioned the model, the business model. That's a hill I'm willing to die on when the stereotype, and it's more than a stereotype, you know, there's a lot of reality to this, but when the stereotype is that architecture and architects and the things that architects do, the things that architects design is primarily for the 1% or something, you know, the elite, basically, whether that's a college or university or a very rich residential client or somebody like that, I will forever contend that if you want to practice architecture for others. And I don't know if that's 99% or 80% or whatever the other, whatever the balance is that there has to be a different business model because the traditional model is literally designed to serve those people, whether it's a percentage of construction or whatever the model is. And so I love that you lead with that because I think you're exactly right. And I want to know more about how you've thought about that and how you've deconstructed that and how you're putting it back together. Sure. So I went off on my own in 2016 and I've gone through a variety of iterations of this, right? Right out of the gate, it was like, you know, just get 
jobs and do jobs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then on the side, try to figure out, okay, how do we just start tweaking this to do something else, right? And I guess to lay the groundwork of this story of the story of Astro Studios and me is I went out on my own, had two major surgeries, and then two babies within the first four years of practice. You were busy. Uh, and then there was a little thing called the global pandemic. You know, So there was a lot of starting and stopping and then starting again and stopping again. And so after the birth of my youngest daughter in, in October of 2020, as I was coming back to work, I was like, I have to make a decision here, right? Like, am I going to stay small and I'm just going to like take on one-off projects here and there and stay at home? Or am I going to really attack this problem, right? And the universe was calling me to do something bigger. And, you know, there's a point, I think you hear this from people like, you can't ignore the calling, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll beat you over the head eventually. <laughs> Um, like Icarus to the sun. You're just drawn to it. I just couldn't put it down. And then after all the civil unrest and uh, the murder of George Floyd, I was like, I can't be silent. I can't keep this to myself. <laughs> we need to figure out another solution. And so I started figuring out how to build a team again. So now we're a team of, of seven. and. We call ourselves a social impact design studio. So we don't just do architecture. It's architecture, interior design, brand design, and website design. And we do all of those things because the clients we serve need us to think about design holistically so that they are showing up in all the places where they are in a consistent way. Hmm. We work with a lot of entrepreneurs, restaurateurs, small businesses, and small organizations and they don't have the bandwidth to handle like a handoff, right? So we've been adding all of these disciplines to what we do. Not, I think they all reinforce the business plan, right? But I don't think it was not my intention when I started doing this. So I was going to like do all these things. The core though, right? The why is how do we use design to make the world a better place? How do we bring design access? To the world. And I think the answer is we have to find a way to work with the organizations that are already doing the good work, right? And so a lot of times those are nonprofits, but now there's also social enterprises, right? So a social enterprise, for anyone who doesn't know, it can be a for-profit or nonprofit entity, but they have social good as a part of their core mission. And for a for-profit social enterprise, you're giving a portion of your profits back to something, right? Mm. So that was sort of like one step for us is to just say, okay, we're a social enterprise. We're going to give a portion of our profits to provide design access to social impact organizations, right? But like, that's not... (laughs) We don't make enough money to have that even come close to meeting the need that we see, right? So this is, you know, I am a big thinker. I'm always tinkering with things. And it's like, okay, this isn't quite working good enough yet, right? So I've now created a fund through the United Way that will, in a much broader sense, provide design access then to social impact organizations. And 
I say social impact organizations because I want to be clear. It's not just the nonprofits, right? Yes, nonprofits, but there are for-profits that need this work too. So we have to have a tool that can help both of them. So we're just really starting that journey. That's all structurally set up. I am about to have a big conversation on Monday. So fingers crossed, everyone, that we get some funding going on in there. (laughs) How can we help or copy the model? So the big, big vision in this, right, is we all know this, like the work is needed everywhere. And it's sort of specific to that place. So the goal is to figure out how this business model is going to work here in Columbus, Ohio, and within this region. And then after we figure that out, really like grow these studios around the country. Because again, this is a sort of like a grassroots movement. How do we actually help co-create the projects that we want to see in the world and then get to work on those projects, right? And we don't want to provide that just for like us as individuals. We want to be able to provide other designers with the ability to do that too. So you have certainly worked in other firms in your career, right? As you're coming up, what is, you know, what's the biggest difference between Astra Studios and a traditional firm that you worked for in the past? Okay. I went to the University of Cincinnati. We co-op. And so you get you did the co-op, yeah. to jumping. Yeah. So lots of different experiences. I think... You know, we are similar probably to a smaller firm, right? We're all wearing multiple hats all the time and sort of also running around with our hair on fire, maybe more than we should be. (laughs) And the architecture and interior design we do is like very similar. I think how we're different is really what we've been trying to create is an integrated model where the everything we do is starting with the story, which is a branding philosophy, right? So we start with story and then carry that through into the other design disciplines. And that can just sometimes be the architecture and interior design, right? But it's bringing then the other branding in the environmental branding into that space. Or it can just be just the story and then carrying that into a website or what other like marketing collateral a client might need to be able to make sure that they're showing up in those spaces in the way that they are in their physical spaces. Right. Does that make sense? It's getting more reasons to talk to someone. It's giving the client more reasons that they should reach out and just talk with you because they may not be looking at a building yet, or they may not have a website yet, depending on where they are in that entrepreneurial process. But that idea of that buzz and it's almost a group that's got a lot of energy inherently. It sounds like the clients you're working with are highly motivated either by the purpose that they're trying to serve, a social good, or because they're just trying to get that thing started. And so that there's that early buzz that you can work with. And it sounds like the way you talk about it, you can meet that energy exactly and just help them channel it. It sounds fun. <laughs> it is. I mean, I think that's just it. Mm-hmm. You know, architecture can be kind of stuffy, right? It can be. And it it shouldn't be. I mean, it affects everything, right? Everything you do, you're moving through something that an architect 
touched at some point in time. I mean, I guess unless you're in the woods, right? We should be having fun. And I think we have a burnout culture or toxic culture that comes out of school that we carry through into practice. And I think that like the younger generations are ready to put that down. If they're going to work so hard and be so stressed out and so invested, right? It's that it's that emotional attachment to your projects, right? If you're going to provide that kind of output, it should be to something that you actually care about and not just lining some wealthy person's pocket, you know, to can just continue, you know, the capitalistic system that we're operating within. And I think that's just, that's it. Like what we're trying to do is maybe hack capitalism a little bit, right? So I heard from other architects who were more seniors several years ago that they've been doing pro bono work their whole careers, that that's always been a part of their practice, that they use it to benefit disadvantaged communities that are nearby them to do that work. And pro bono is either reduced cost or free. I also was watching a TED Talk this morning about this sort of open source idea of people designing together, but everyone just donates their time and donates everything. The way you talk about this and present this, it sounds more sustainable because you want to make it status quo to be able to serve these projects within a for-profit structure. And so what makes this the time that you think this will work and take hold? Because I feel like architects have wanted to do this for a long time. It's just hasn't manifested. And the way that you're puzzling this through and working it out, it seems to be taking more traction with the format that you're presenting. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll see, right? Is this like, like yeah. we'll see. We can touch base again in a year or two and like see how this has developed. But yeah, when I was thinking about this after grad school, the models that I saw out there were people who had for-profit architecture firms and then a nonprofit architecture firm. And then the for-profit was subsidizing the nonprofit, right? That's a model, right? The issue is you have to spend so much time and energy doing the things that make the for-profit firm work that you don't have much time to give to the nonprofit firm. And then what happens when there's a recession or work dries up or whatever, the first thing to go is going to be the nonprofit in general, right? That's what I kept coming back to is like, this is not sustainable. This is not an actual answer to how we can address the needs that we see all around us. Again, in a meaningful and an impactful way and have it be the focus of what we do instead of we get to touch it once a month or we get one project a year or whatever it is. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. 
there's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. Daryl's got a good question and it's, um, it's about funding. Is there another funding mechanism to support your firm? The time it takes to offer architectural services. And, and I know for my students over the years, they've all been fascinated, not all, but many have been fascinated by, by mass design group. Oh, they're the, the nonprofit architecture firm. And anybody that wants to go to my YouTube channel, you can, you can see a couple of recordings from Matthew Smith, who has recently left Mass Design Group, I believe, but talking about mass design and, and architecture, et cetera. And if you don't know this, they're supported by a huge, huge endowment, right? There's a funding mechanism. Yes, they're non for profit, but they, you know, you look at the names of the people that fund their endowment and it's the who's who, right, of philanthropists, which is fantastic, allows them to do what they do. But that's a different model, even than what you're talking about. So I guess to Daryl's question is, is there more funding somewhere in this machine that allows you to balance these things that allows you to provide these services in these ways? And then I've got a thought on how what you're doing is like the Apple store, but we'll get back to that. Oh, I'm so curious. <laughs> so, I mean, again, our model is is really still at the core. It's still a traditional for-profit business model, right? We take on projects and, and they pay us for them. The thing that we've added is that we now have a fund that philanthropic dollars can go into to help provide design access to people and organizations who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford design services. I am always trying to find other potential revenue streams to help support this. I mean, because really the the philosophy here, and we do a little bit of anything and everything, but I know someone asked to look at the website and I'm like, we have projects we need to get up there. So (laughs) it's ever evolving, as we all know. But the future version of us is being able to be a little bit more picky about what we're taking on and making sure that the projects are more aligned with what our mission actually is, right? That's where I think this gets really interesting to me. So I mentioned the Apple store, right? And if you're Apple, you can go out and you can hire Bowen, Schwinski Jackson, or BCJ, however you pronounce the names of their firm. And you can create this iconic brand that is 
you know, obviously the brand of app that I've got to be careful. I'm going to put the build your brand hat on the brand artifacts of Apple, right? The brand artifact that is the Apple store designed by BCJ, all of them, I believe, by the firm out of California. The brand artifacts that are the white boxes, that are everything else about Apple, um, some of that designed in-house, some of that designed by other designers. There's no one in your neighborhood that has, whether you're in Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, Minneapolis, Minnesota, or just about anywhere, there's nobody in your neighborhood that can afford to create those brand artifacts, but you still have organizations that are worthy of that sort of brand recognition or that, I forget how you said it before, but carrying that design all the way through. The architecture, you know, maybe it's retail, maybe it's the displays in the store, maybe it's the website, maybe it's the the swag, maybe it's whatever, right? And that's what I think is really interesting about what you're doing is I always say that as an architect, your job is to make your client's life better, period. Whatever that means to them, it's different for every client. But if it's a business and Astro Studios can essentially bring the the Apple level design in that it's thought through, it's designed all the way through because we know, I mean, if we were really honest about it, and all of us looked around at all of our brand artifacts, our websites, our business cards, our logos, and all the other stuff. We go, yeah, this ain't Apple, right? We're designers, we're architects, we're professionals, but we don't have it going on like Apple's got it going on. So, but if Astro Studios can do that for the local coffee shop, for the not-for-profit, for whoever it is, that to me gets really interesting. I love the multiple streams of income. I love the fact that you can do this and you haven't used the term triple bottom line, but it's got to be in here somewhere in the social enterprise, right? I think this is an interesting way of serving clients at a different level. You know, one of the names that keeps coming to me is IDO and they're even broader, right? With all the services that they provide. But, but I think it's an interesting way to really impact your clients in ways that many of them, I'm guessing, never even dreamed of. Yeah, I think like the clients that we tend to serve, right? They don't even know that they need design. They don't even understand what design is, right? Yeah, most people outside of Apple don't. They don't know how to ask for it. So it's kind of, I mean, a big part of actually what we, we need to do as far as like marketing, right? Is actually education. It's educating people about the value of design, which as a profession, by the way, we need badly. (laughs) And then why would you pay for this? What should the ROI of design be for you, right? And we want to make sure that we're empowering our clients to really maximize that ROI and hopefully really expand and amplify whatever the impact is that they're looking to have. This is just so exciting. I see just this network growing for you because the people you work with will want to know each other. And I just see you as growing as that network and that connection and that resource for all of them as this continues to evolve and grow. There just seem to be so many things possible as you continue to talk to more people and and grow that network. And incredible to hear that you've gotten the United Way 
locally to start to fund. And that's a national organization, I believe. And so once you start to introduce those ideas at one scale, you start to see the possibilities for it growing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the point for me, I guess, as the CEO, right, is to figure out how to make this work at this scale, but really systematize everything so that we can not just scale in size here, but actually transplant this model to other places and have it be successful there, right? And not have to reinvent the wheel every time. You know, one thing that intrigues me about this is, and I was talking with somebody about this earlier today, is that, you know, a guilty pleasure One of the ways that I like to stir the pot is to ask architects, you know, in your state, what percentage of projects require an architect's involvement, require an architect to stamp that set of drawings or whatever's appropriate for the project? And if you're in New York or Pennsylvania or New Jersey or California, you're all of them, all of them, you know, all of them. In 48, 47, 46 of the states in the union, that's not the case. The majority of projects don't require an architect. You could hire an engineer to stamp it, or it's residential and it's not required anyway, et cetera. And I mean, that's the reality. The majority of the projects in the United States, so those of you that are in our audience that are outside the United States, I apologize for a, for a very U.S.-centric comment, but... I think this model is intriguing because you could expand the reach of the profession by providing that value that's not normally, that doesn't come from, doesn't normally come from a traditional architecture firm, provide more value, expand the reach of the profession into projects that may not have had the involvement of an architect anyway, but you still, you bring the the sensibility, the expertise, all the things that you bring to the table. And I know you've got more in your staff, including a story brand certified brand guide, which I enjoy. That's another thing that intrigues me about this model is that it, you could be going the opposite direction of the thing of the way that I see a lot of things happening, right? I think the profession is in danger of really drawing back, right? If we don't think differently about the way the services that we provide, the way that we provide them, you're going to complete opposite direction with that. Yeah, I feel like there was a reckoning still that needs to happen (laughs) for a lot of architecture firms. We can't just pretend that what happened over the past couple years didn't happen and and revert back to what we were Mm -hmm. then, right? It's different. I think our employees want something different. I think the public is asking for something different. And... I think that the answer is going to be different for all of us, but Mm -hmm. certainly for us, it's again, just like really honing in on what is the purpose for us being here. Right. And how do we make sure that we are using really like our skills, our passions to make the world actually better and not waiting. And again, this is for me, like I'm not going to wait for someone else to come up with an answer. We just got to start like tinkering with it and see what works. Yeah, I love that. Don's got a good question too. And this probably goes to your the different iterations, right? And, and I love the fact I'm almost three weeks now into our incubator that I'm running for Shadow Partners. 
And what's funny about the startup world is that there's constant iteration, right? And there's constant learning, changing, throwing it out and, and starting over, et cetera. So Don wants to know, when you started out, did you find yourself changing your fee structure when working with not-for-profits versus for-profit clients? That happens a lot. Been there, done that. So <laughs> how about you? What's your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think as a young firm, when it was first, I mean, we're still not like we have all the answers now. It was just like any work, get any work, right? <laughs> so the my fees were not what they should be, right? I was undervaluing myself. And so it almost didn't matter if it was a for-profit or non-profit in that regard. Oh, no. <laughs> I think now, this is, again, what we're using our internal funding mechanism for. So if there's a client that we really want to work with who we give a proposal to who cannot afford our services, we can then choose to use some of our internal funding to reduce the cost to them. But I think this is an important part that I, I try to preach here. We cannot give a discount without them understanding what the value is. Otherwise, they're not going to appreciate the discount. That's a really great point. Putting the full market rate price out there is really important. And then we can back down off of that in order or remove scope or whatever it is to, to get it within what they, they can't afford. So let's talk about the, the internal funding mechanism for a minute. I mean, who all has contributed to that fund and how is that governed? How does that work? They don't have it. We could take it from this. Should we, you know, how does that work? So sorry, which one? Our internal fund or the fund with the United Way? Let's start with the internal and then go to the United Way. Yeah. So the internal, the way that has happened to this point is, and we're trying to get a better system in place, right? It's been a little, just Amanda gut check. <laughs> like, like, oh, I really want to do this project with this client. Like, we're just going to make it happen, right? And what we need to do when we do something like that is quantify what kind of resources we're putting into that to be able to track those metrics over time. So I think like, for instance, what's the number right now? I think like since 21, we've given away like over $20,000 worth of services, right? <laughs> but so there's not, because it's our internal decision, there doesn't need to be a whole lot of structure. There doesn't have to be too much structure and there doesn't need to be too much of an approval process. It's just like, can we afford this right now? Do we like, how bad is it going to hurt us? And if so, like how bad, right? And then sort of go from there. But where I want to get to is really tracking, having a goal for how much we want to be giving away each year and be tracking the metrics around that goal. So this is again like how we're in the stage of going from startup mode and flying by the seats of your pants, right? Into growing up into a real company. <laughs> so we have, we have some business consultants helping us to be able to get all of those good big business practices and models like built in to the, the structure here. But the United Way fund is again, brand new. 
the structure is there, though there's just no funding yet. So I'm, this is what I've been saying lately. I'm like, hi, yes, I'm an architect and I'm starting to fundraise. I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) But I also, you know, this is why I'm an entrepreneur and a founder and probably a serial entrepreneur is the right terminology for me. Not afraid to go and try. I know that I'm not going to probably knock it out of the park from the get-go, but you know, we'll learn from it and, and continue to do better over time. So the way that is structured is that there's a fund set up with them and there's going to be a review committee that decides how that funding is then allocated. So there will be a whole application process and we need to test it out and see what works and what doesn't and then, you know, tweak it. Again, this is like the right now iteration of this. There's a future version that maybe is a standalone foundation or something. I don't know. But this very quickly gets out of what I know anything about, right? It's a terribly exciting time to talk with you about it, though, because you are figuring out, you are in the midst of it. And I remember talking with you and Matt earlier about this. Matt also works for you at Astra. And so it seemed like this was going to be three or four years out, but the timeline has just crunched and it just seems like you're getting so much traction on it that you weren't expecting. And so it's exciting to see this boosting forward, just like your little logo of a rocket, it's going and you're just trying to hang on and keep it going. And it's very fun. Um, And there seem to be so many possibilities. I know when I've worked, like when passion projects come up, And think, okay, maybe this is like, I work with them. They're kind of an an ambassador in some sense. And it's kind of like part of my marketing budget is kind of offsetting the cost of some of the fees I might be discounting, but always invoicing them for the full amount, but to show them that value. But then this discount, like I'm kind of, I might be a little too good at writing that off for passion projects. But it sounds like the way that you're formalizing this And making it fair to those who are applying and making that process more systematized will help you to do that guilt-free, to say, this is part of that process. And yes, you are an ambassador. You are this person who's going to push these elements forward. And we're going to reap the benefits of that with new relationships that are going to form with the success we're going to see in sharing your story through all these different markets. And we're going to have this stronger relationship that's going to build. And so finding those key partners seems to be that challenge point. Like who's going to be a good alignment for that? And what criteria can you know from the start to tell if it's going to take off the way Astra wants it to? Yeah, creating the program was a really interesting deep dive into how do you weigh these different projects against each other, right? And give one more merit than the other, maybe eventually. I don't know that we have the full right answer. We are actually working with a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant to make sure that we're not missing something that is not doing the thing that we want it to actually be doing, right? So there's just so much we don't know. And this how it's going to work, right? But we're trying to do the best we can at the onset. We really were building our rubric 
of how these these projects will be assessed off of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So the lower your project is in meeting the basic human needs, the higher it will be ranked, right? That's fascinating. Yeah, that is. To break that into it. It really is. One thing that really stands out to me, and I was thinking about this because there's something that's pretty complicated about this, but there's also something that's that's really pretty basic, pretty simple about about this. And so I was wondering, you know, why don't more firms do this or why don't more firms think like this? And that's pretty easy because this is the way we've always done it. That is the most dangerous statement in our society today. But, you know, to me, what it comes down to, and you're talking about systematizing and and all these, it comes down to intentionality, right? How are we being intentional about all of these things that we do? And again, having, you know, been there, done that a number of times, a lot of these things that you're talking about are done, right? Hey, we're going to give a discount or we're going to whatever, whatever the story is, but I think a big difference is that there's not a lot of intentionality. We're going to go out and we're going to intentionally serve XYZ, whether it's a community or, I don't know, musicians or whatever it is. And here's how we're going to do it. I think that's an important takeaway for what you're talking about is that there are a lot of people that are trying to do this within the structure of a traditional firm model. And again, I'll die on the hill. You can't do it. You have to get outside of that model. And that to me is the important takeaway. You're not that far outside, right? This isn't like bizarro world, but you're outside of that model and you're intentionally outside of that model. And you're really thinking about how you serve a lot of different layers, a lot of different types of clients in different ways within your same structure. And I, Again, it's, I keep using the word fascinating. It is fascinating to me. So I love this. I love the fact that you're exploring it. And I also love the fact that you don't have it figured out. Yeah, but, who does? <laughs> but I think that's important. I actually think that's really important because a year from now, if we have a part two of this conversation, you're going to be at a different place on the road and you're going to have some different answers And you're going to have realized some things and discovered some things and done some different things. And if nobody's willing, you said something like this earlier, if no one's willing to do it, we're not going to get there, right? And, you know, all of our biggest fears about drafts people and IT people and, you know, whatever, they're going to come to fruition because we weren't willing to give it a shot. We weren't willing to try it. And I applaud you for trying it. And I like what I see here. I like what I hear here. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That is validating. I think <laughs> I think that this confuses a lot of people in business, just business people and in the architecture world. They're like mm-hmm. I, I get the the question a lot, like, well, so how are you gonna make money? Like <laughs> how are they making money? Right? Yeah. This is a little bit tongue in cheek, but there are a lot of firms out there that are operating as a not for profit without filing as a not for profit. One book that, or two books that have popped up into my mind a lot during this conversation, both by Mike Michalowicz, Profit First and Fix This Next. I don't know if you've read either one. I think I saw something, Katie, about us having Mike back in January. 
But those books are about intentionality. I bring up profit first a lot and people say, oh, it's, you know, we're not putting profit ahead of everything else. That's not the point at all. The point is being intentionally profitable. It's about setting up a structure that allows us to be profitable. And, you know, and I, I get students all, oh, you know, we love not for profit. No, you have a responsibility to build a sustainable business. And that responsibility is for you, your family, the people that depend on you, the employees that depend on you, their families, your community that you're contributing to, et cetera. You have a responsibility to build this, this sustainable entity. And if you decide that you're going to give away all of your profits, I don't care. Good for you, I guess, whatever. But you have to be intentional about that. And, and Profit First would fit into Fix This Next. It's looking at it more holistically than simply the profit finances of it. Because legacy is one of the tenets, and I forget exactly how Mike describes it, but it's one of the tenets of Fix This Next. You might enjoy that book. It might really resonate with you based on what you're doing here. But anyway, my rumination on... <laughs> on business models. But I love what you're doing here. You get a lot of a lot of uh, applause there from Christian. That's a lot of clapping hands. Thank you, Christian. <laughs> yeah. Katie, any last thoughts or questions? This has oh, got me it's got so me many thoughts. It's so exciting. Yeah. I think one of the grandest things to hear about is that it's not like a traditional architecture firm of a pyramid where you're not just at the top. There's an architecture firm, I'll say this quickly, here in Minnesota called Sala. And they seem to have a different structure where they have in their small firm of 10 or 12, eight of them are principals. And so it's more of a circle. And inside that circle, they have their, their support staff and their interns and their, their other people who are helping those eight all lead their own projects. And they sort of co-collaborate on different projects here and there. But those eight people, people have gone through Sala for decades and they go on to do great things. Sarah Suzanka and a whole bunch of other big names, Dale Mulfinger and a whole bunch. Yours reminds me of that business model because of how you've created the circle of resources with these different disciplines. And it's such a unique collection of disciplines, especially hearing how you're starting to round it off into a full circle of service firm for the clients that you specifically are trying to reach out to and serve. And so it's cool how that's starting to be informed by what you hear your clients asking for and starting to mold yourself to be like, yeah, we could do that. Yes, that would build us up and that would serve you better. And so it's just so exciting where you are in this process. It's going to be fun to check back in and hear how it continues. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate having this conversation with all of you and look forward to following up sometime. Yeah. Absolutely. Christian says we must. He shouted that. It's all caps. We must have a part two. So, all right. So look for part two and, you know, we'll figure out what an appropriate amount of time as you iterate, but we'll have a part two of this conversation. After next Monday's meeting. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Send me all the good vibes, please. <laughs> there you go. Amanda, I really appreciate you for joining us in this conversation and sharing your story with us. It's definitely food for thought. And I hope that's one of my, it's one of the things I love about context and clarity. Yes, I love stirring the pot and I love bringing in different ideas and whether from inside the profession or outside to 
think about different ways that we can we can serve and and we can build businesses and and we can do the things that we love to do. So I really appreciate you bringing us this perspective. It gives us a lot to think about. Well, thank you for having me. And with that, everybody out there, we thank you for being here as well. Again, we've just launched into our second week into the fall season here. Uh, We've got, uh, I think, eight more weeks of Context and Clarity before we take a break for the uh, depths of winter, I guess, basically the holidays. (laughs) And and then we'll uh, kick off again in January. But Several more weeks of Context and Clarity Live to come. We look forward to it. Katie, as always, thanks for being my co-host here today. Appreciate you and everybody for this opportunity. And we'll see you again next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Thanks, everybody. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use in your practice or even in your daily life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, I invite you to go over to the Entree Architect Network. It's a place where entrepreneur architects just like you gather to have conversations on these topics and support each other in their practices and in their lives. You can find the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, your ratings, and your shares help us and help other entrepreneur architects like you to gather together. And you can help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA Continuing Education Services Provider. Upon completion, we handle everything, from reporting your hours directly to the AIA, to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media.